Father, it's good to be still and to be quiet and to have our minds and our hearts calmed by the goodness that belongs to yourself. It's good to know your nearness. We thank you that that nearness is possible because of the most wondrous work of your son, Jesus Christ. We want to sing and proclaim as your people, not my will, but your will be done. We struggle with that, and so we ask in advance that you would delight in power and for your glory. Use your word this morning in ways that you see fit, in ways that you know that we need. Lord, would you render all things for your glory in and through us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always an honor and joy to open the word of God. Amen. If you'll take God's word to Psalm 73, our pastor is away this weekend. We pray for his refreshing. He would be rejuvenated upon his return. But our task is still the same. It's to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and look to his word. It's no doubt been another wild week. And it's been a wild week in a world that no doubt continues to groan. And as Romans 8 says, it continues to groan to be set free, right? From this slavery of corruption. And in the meantime, that while it's groaning, you know this in life, dysfunction, injustice, and chaos is going to continue to persist on this earth. And I'm talking head-scratching dysfunction. You can think of all its forms, even this year. So I would dare say that this morning what you and I need is that we need to pull up a chair and sit with an individual by the name of Asaph. Truth be told, we love Asaph because we get Asaph. Yes, he was an incredibly gifted man who was an outstanding musician in the time of David. So much so that if you turn to First Chronicles 15 and 16, the king literally establishes him as the minister of music in the temple. For generations to come, his offspring is going to comprise the entire line and clan that's going to be comprised of temple musicians. You may be saying to yourself, well, what do you mean I get Asaph? I'm not all that particularly musically gifted or inclined. And friends, one thing that makes Asaph so attractive to every single one of us is not his artistry, but his brutal honesty about himself and what it is that he sees around him. He's one of those tell-it-like-it-is guys that we can all relate to. And so a lot of times we read these inner struggles of faith and faulty thinking inside of Asaph that give way to despair and anguish. And as we read them, in particular psalms, specifically this psalm this morning, we can't help but say, I, I get that guy. I, I've been there. I've done that. That's bound up in my own heart. And that's exactly what... We even experience as we read Psalm 73. It's one of those expressions of, of an experience that we can relate to. And why is that? It's because in this psalm, Asaph does something. He takes his eyes off of the Lord and he focuses on the world around him. Church family, that gets Asaph into significant trouble. We've all been in that exact place. Anyone this morning actually wrestle with the nearsightedness, like physically speaking, the eye condition, right? 
nearsightedness or what we call myopia. It's a condition, right, where your eye struggles to really focus light correctly so that distant objects appear blurry and close objects appear clear. Well, the truth of the matter is that we've all been guilty of spiritual myopia where we choose willingly to only see and focus on what is right in front of us. And when we bother to only focus on the here and now, what happens? Our faith struggles. Our lives grow unsettled. Our confidence is shaken. And the question is, when this happens, and it happens to all of us, how does a person see his or her way out? What does it look like to regain focus, and how is that focus obtained? Well, in the real world, treatments for myopia include eyeglasses, contacts, even Lasix. But for the believer, what is the treatment for spiritual myopia? I present to you Exhibit A, Psalm 73. This psalm was written during a time when Asaph took his eyes off of the Lord and focused on the prosperity of the wicked. And this look caused him to struggle. It caused him to lose sight of the eternal. Why? It's because he was giving his full attention to the temporal. And this posed a simple question and faith dilemma inside of Asaph. How is it that the wicked so often prosper while the godly so often suffer? Why do the wicked so often prosper and the godly so often suffer? We've all asked maybe a version of that same question. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all observed and have been bothered when scoundrels seem to get rich. And utterly degenerate people are paid and sought, paid well and sought after and held in high esteem. And why this bothers us is that the wicked doing better than the godly, at least as we perceive it, is not what we would expect in a moral universe directed by a sovereign God, right? If God is in control of all things, and he is, the plans of the wicked should flounder, right? But that's not what Asaph observed. And that's not what you and I observe. What we see in Psalm 73 is that Asaph looks at the world with open eyes. And what does he do? He then comes to God for the answer to his problem. And through this portion of God's word, friends, you and I are encouraged to do exactly that. If you're taking notes this morning, the main idea over this psalm would be this. Faith disturbing nearsightedness is ameliorated or reformed, corrected, made right by the nearness of God. Faith disturbing nearsightedness is ameliorated by the nearness of God. Psalm 73 reads the following. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. 
They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, this is an important part, until I came into the sanctuary of God then. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With you, your counsel, you guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Faith disturbing nearsightedness is ameliorated, reformed, corrected, made right by the nearness of God. Let me put this another way, friends. It is not possible to see and trust in the eternal when your focus is on that which is temporary. That which is temporal. And when you lose that focus, how do you regain it back? This psalm is incredibly instructive for us. We do a number of things. Number one, we are prompted to be transparent about our unsettling perception of life. Be transparent about your unsettling perception on life. You look at verses 1 through 3, right out the gate, we see a very disturbing problem in Asaph. He He remembers a time in his life when he envied the prosperity of the wicked and he nearly fell into doubt about the goodness of God to the righteous. And we can all empathize here with Asaph's really unsettled condition. There is a classic disturbance with inside all of us at some point, and it goes like this. God, there is what I unequivocally know to be true about you. But I'll be honest, what I presently feel is in violation to what I know. You know what I'm talking about. My head does not travel the distance to my heart. That 18-inch distance in between are not in lockstep with each other. And so Psalm 73 gives voice to what it looks like for faith to honestly doubt what it does in fact believe. God, there's what I know There's also what I feel. What does he know? What he knows is the goodness of God. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel. 
to those who are pure in heart. Church family, this is one of the most fundamental truths about God. He is good. Psalm 119.68, you are good and you do good. The psalmist conveys that God is constantly good to his people who, who trust him and those who are pure in heart. You'll recall Ezra 3, right? God exhibits his manifold goodness to the people of God after disciplining them and judging them. That in and of effect was his goodness on their behalf. By bringing them back to the promised land, the foundation of the temple is laid. And you'll recall what they do in Ezra 3. They stand. They sing. They give thanks to God. And they praise him for you are good. And your loving kindness endures, endures upon Israel forever. They stand, sing, give thanks, and praise, for the Lord is good. You know Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what, church? Good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That is what Asaph knows. But then comes verse 2. And it's a dramatic shift. Asaph confesses that he came close to abandoning this confidence in God's goodness. In fact, throughout the psalm, you're going to see these phrases, but as for me, four different times. And it's his way for, the way for Asaph to really confess the gravity and depth of his error. And this error had almost caused him to turn aside from the right way. My steps, my feet had almost slipped. By his own admission, he had nearly lost his foothold. And could have suffered a monumental fall in his spiritual life. What caused this? That would be helpful for us to ask and answer. What causes this? Well, friends, Asaph allowed his focus to shift from the goodness of God to the prosperity of the wicked. And this caused him to doubt God. Look at verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of of the wicked, as if to quickly confess, God, you are good, and I am most assuredly am not. I am envious of the arrogant. I see the prosperity of the wicked, and something rises up within me that is not good and not sound. Again, this is an earthly question that we've all wrestled with. Why should people who disregard God be, at least what appears to be, the recipients of his goodness more than those who trust him? And I underline, appears to be. This is the question that's in Asaph's mind. And he's very transparent about this unsettling perception of life. Notice Asaph doesn't try to pretend that this is bothering him. Let me just smile, go about the congregation, lead in music. He brings this before the Lord. Why? Because the Lord already knows these things about him anyway. I was envious of the arrogant. And he's honest and transparent about that perception of life. This is a must in order for Asaph to regain spiritual focus as well as it is for us as well. Secondly, regaining spiritual focus requires that you be humbled by your distorted view of envy. Be humbled by your distorted view of envy. This is what the impetus was for Asaph's unsettled condition. 
It's envy. His problem was that he began to compare the health, wealth, and prosperity of the wicked with his apparent lack of prosperity. And he was resentful that God would allow such a state to continue. This comparison gave way to an assault against the goodness of God in Asaph's mind. And that is often where our problem lies too, isn't it? It's not really an intellectual problem that bothers us, as it is that God is not treating us as we, as we think he should treat us. That other people seem to be doing better than we are. That we have to struggle for a living while others coast along without any apparent trouble. You see, friends, our problem is one of envy. And envy is always the act of criticizing the God who made you. Plain and simple. Envy is always criticizing the God of heaven and earth. Just look at the description of the wicked. In verses 4 and 5, Asaph notes at what he perceives to be a troubling contradiction that he saw all around him. The prosperity of the wicked who had, as he says, no pains. Of course they had problems. But they were obviously hidden from Asaph's gaze. He could not perceive the problems. To them, they they were living a, a painless existence. In his eyes, they were healthy. In his eyes, they were strong, or the biblical word there is fat, right? It's an um, idea in that time that was a person without want. They were free from the burdens of life, those troubles that are common to all men. They even died seemingly, seemingly painless deaths. In verses 6 through 9, Asaph notes that even the speech of the wicked was corrupt. This added to his bewilderment. They actually scoffed at what was good and spoke with malice toward God and his kingdom. They're full of arrogance. They acted as if they controlled heaven as well as controlled earth. Just look at verse 6. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Friends, is that not an apt description for many in our society today? Braggadocious, arrogant, complete and utter disregard for the sanctity of life. And indeed, pride and violence are not just their apparel for these Wicked, for these that Asaph perceives as prosperous, not only is pride and violence their apparel, but they flaunt such apparel publicly, unashamedly, unapologetically. It's their necklace. They're clothed with a garment of violence. And in verses 10 through 11, Asaph's bewilderment is further compounded. Not only are the wicked seemingly running amok with blasphemous arrogance, but they're actually influencing other people to do the same. Verse 10. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. People were turning to these that were wicked, and drinking up the waters that spewed from their mouths. 
And they were being encouraged to live in the same way. And in their pride, literally, as they're influencing others to proceed along their same path, the wicked had the audacity, the audacity to say, eh, how can God know? Is there really knowledge with the Most High? And you can see the underlying vile audacity underlining that question. How can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? In their pride, they assumed what? They assumed that God could not see their sin because it was going unpunished, at least in the moment. Where is God? Does he see? And you can see almost kind of a mocking tone behind their question. Verse 12 is really a summary of Asaph's lament in this environment. This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree as they increase in wealth. God, what gives? And eventually this grave mistake of taking his eyes off of God's goodness and focusing them on the here and now prompted Asaph to question his own pursuit of righteousness. Not only does he begin to question the goodness of God, he begins to question his own pursuit of righteousness. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Spiraling downward, this is the ultimate example of self-pity in Asaph's life. To Asaph, it seemed to do him no good to follow God and obey his word. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. What was so good behind remaining pure? What was the value? What was the benefit to Asaph? All day long he felt plagued, he says. He was punished for doing what was right. He was stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Why remain loyal to God if this, is, was this, if this was his reward? Why remain loyal to him? Church, this is the temptation when you do as Asaph did. When you take your eyes off of God and begin to compare your condition with the condition of those around you and the circumstances of the wicked... This is what happens in your life. Everything starts to become blurry. You lose focus. The goodness of God is not pronounced to you. The nearness of God is not experienced in a tangible, powerful way in your life. You are so consumed by the fog of here and now. All you can see is the prosperity of those who are arrogant and violent and mock God. And if you take that to its final place, you reach the destination where you say... What is the point? This is a real and raw wrestling to be sure. And voicing such in his role as leader in the temple would have been a stumbling block to be sure to the rest of the congregation. You just look at verse 15, he's voicing his lament publicly. He says, if I would have done this, I would have portrayed the generation after me. And here is undeniable evidence that this is in fact a child of God. 
that even in his inner struggle, and let's just be clear about that, even believers struggle, okay? Even believers struggle. Even in his inner struggle, the last thing that he wanted to do was what? It was to harm the faith of other people. This is an interesting point. It may be true that his feet had almost slipped, but it hadn't slipped to the point where it made him forget his responsibility as a leader of God's people. If I had said this, I would have betrayed the generation after me. This is a man who's simply struggling to understand everything he perceives. And he's transparent and humble by the struggle that is within. He's troubled, that is, until he embarks on an exercise in verse 17. That North Lake Bible Church, I want to encourage you, this is powerfully instructive for you and I today. Regaining spiritual focus not only requires that you be transparent about your unsettling perception of life. It not only requires that you be humbled by your distorted view of envy, but third... Regaining spiritual focus requires that you be open to a renewed perspective through the worship of God. Be open to a renewed perspective through the worship of God. I don't know about you, but the first couple of words of verse 17 strike me right between the eyes. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. What happens here? What happens? Asaph is plummeting on a downhill path of floundering faith, to be sure. When all of a sudden, here comes a turning point in Asaph's life. Just when he was about to be swept away, Asaph, the honest doubter, enters into the sanctuary of God. And it was there that he came to understand the final destiny of the wicked. Then I perceived their end. Friends, just consider this paradigm shift in Asaph's mind. And it's a needed shift, right? Faced with a renewed and eternal perspective... Asaph now settles in the truth that the destiny of the wicked is not prosperity, but one of judgment. Look at verse 18. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. The very people that I looked upon and envied and compared myself to, to I now perceive them rightly. God, you set them in slippery places. Not me. I'm not responsible for said placing, of which I'm thankful Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. And this would come upon these individuals when they least expect it. They would be swept away, Asaph says, by ter terrors, suffering a dreadful death that led to everlasting punishment. North Lake, what happens here? What, what is different with Asaph? Mind you, his circumstances has not, have not changed, have they? The wicked have not changed. They're just as arrogant, just as deceitful, and just as violent. And continuing to mock the God that he worships. Nothing has really changed in those regards. 
What is different? What is different is that Asaph is now gripped with something. He's gripped with God's perspective. He now comes to see the lives of the wicked and also his own life, in like measure, no longer from his own limited, sinful, short-sightedness. Those cataracts that enable, that really inhibit him from seeing things as clearly as they are. And his vision is corrected. Spectacles are placed. God interjects corrective measures in his life. And he now sees the life of the wicked in his own life. No longer from that sinful, short-sighted worldview. But now from the perspective of eternity. North Lake, that is what the worship of God does. God uses the worship of himself through the proclamation of his word and the singing of his praises. We just sang it a moment ago. To center our vision upon who? Not my surroundings. Praise God, not my bank account. Not my troubles. Not my ailments. Not my sickness. Not the death around me. He centers my gaze upon himself. And friends, it's only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. Our misjudgments at that place are corrected. Our lives are no longer in that instance dominated by despair and envy and dismay, but it's dominated by hope and joy and peace. We've seen this, let me remind you, in the book of Hebrews, and I trust you're enjoying the journey that is through Hebrews. We looked at Hebrews 3, our pastor opened up Hebrews 3, 6, Christ was a faithful son, such that he is our confidence and the boast of our hope, firm unto the end. Don't you love that? He is a faithful as a son, to which it's followed by the exhortation, therefore... Just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not what, church? Harden your heart. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 13, this has been a sweet verse to, to our small group, I know, and I trust yours as well. But encourage one another, day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, do you think Asaph was living out of an unbelieving heart? You think he was being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Well, as you move through Psalm 73, 1 through 16, that's exactly what he was doing. There was unbelief, there was doubting, there was the deceitfulness of sin. There was this perception that in the lives of those who were wicked, that all was prosperous and right and carefree. And that wasn't the case. Asaph was being deceived. And so if he was to regain spiritual focus, he had to be open to a renewed perspective through the worship of God. God placing my eyes on what is around me has gotten me into, into trouble. Let me cast my gaze upon you. But not only was he to be open to a renewed perspective through the worship of God. He was to regain spiritual focus. If that were to occur in his life, 
It would require for him and for us to be quick, number four, be quick to reaffirm your delight and faith in God. Be quick to reaffirm your delight and faith in God. That is exactly what Asaph does in verses 21 through 28. By the time we reach verse 21, Asaph has a completely new awareness of things. And this awareness is multi-layered. Not only does he have a new awareness of the destiny of the wicked, but he also has an awareness of himself that he did not prior, prior have. He regrets this sort of marred perspective that he once held and laments that this pers- the person that that perspective had created. His inner pain was the result of the envy that had sprung up in his embittered spirit, he says. And as a result, notice how he describes himself. It says, he was senseless. I was ignorant. God, I was without any spiritual discernment. I was without any understanding. He literally, friends, compares himself to a wild animal. He admitted to God, God, I was a brute beast before you. This was Asaph's way of saying, God, I was devoid of any clear-headed thinking. I was unsound in my judgment. And friends, that is exactly the true state of things when you begin to question God. You are senseless. You are ignorant. And even as Asaph says, in that moment when I am guilty of such, I am like a brute beast of the field. You know what they say, that if you think like an animal, you will more than likely act like an animal. Again, this new awareness is multi-layered because Asaph also has a new awareness of, of God's presence as well. So not only does he have a new awareness about the destiny of the wicked, that's corrected in his mind. Not only does he have a new awareness about himself and who he is in that moment of questioning the goodness of God. But he also has a new awareness of God's presence. He now perceived that the end of the wicked was one of judgment. Their life was not a bed of roses as it seemed. Even when the externals around him conveyed otherwise. Asaph at this juncture is now able to see the blessing that belonged to the righteous in a way that he previously was not able. Look at verse 23 through 26. And I love the hope here as I say this because I, I, I talk to individuals and you're transparent about your unselling perception of life. You're humbled by your distorted view of envy and it is humbling. It's humiliating. You're open to a renewed perspective through the worship of God. And in that moment, you stop and you beat yourself up, right? And you stop just short of receiving all of the grace and mercy that is available to you through the work of Jesus Christ. And you swim in the mire of pity and shame and guilt when the shame and guilt has already been dealt with. Amen? Notice what he says in verse 23. Nevertheless, what a sweet confession and sweet resolve. I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me. And afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my portion forever. What a confession. 
That right there are four verses worth memorizing, Northlake. One of the finest expressions of true spirituality right there. Verses 23 through 26. Asaph attributed the restoration of a spiritual sight to the faithfulness of God who was always with him. And the reality that God was with him and would not let him go. Even when Asaph had drifted into spiritual apathy, it was God holding his right hand. Not vice versa, friends. God took hold of his hand. And that made all the difference in the world in Asaph's mind and heart. As if to say, God took the hand of this undeserving ignoramus, senseless, ignorant, brute beast of the field, and graciously offered him the guidance that he needed to see his way out of his foolishness. God's word and counsel had allowed him, allowed him to overcome his errant ways and his foolishness. Northlake, what's the takeaway here for you and I? The takeaway is that despite us being unfaithful, God is faithful. Amen? And it's because of this that we can remain forever, forever confident that due to God's loving kindness, He will receive us into glory. This confidence catapulted Asaph into a spontaneous reaffirmation of his renewed faith in God. Verse 25, whom am I in heaven but you? Friends, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one but God could help him. And Asaph desired no one but him. Many Christians have been able to echo the psalmist here. Confessing that in the final assessment of things, in the final analysis of everything we perceive around us, the only thing that really matters for us is God himself. Yes, we have elections. Yes, we have disruption around the world. Yes, we have chaos and unrest. And we have such chaos being celebrated and championed and even promoted. God is with me. He sustains me. And Asaph's not done with his reaffirmation of delight and faith in God. Asaph concludes saying that to be near to God was the finest blessing one could hope for in this life and beyond. In fact, the quote-unquote blessing of this world, everything that he previously perceived, the prosperity, the wealth, the health, Everyone who is wicked and arrogant and mocking God seemed to be doing fantastic. And all of that perceived blessing, quote unquote, that he was once envious of, none of that blessing could hold a candle to the blessing that belongs to those who know the nearness of God. The unfaithful are in fact far off from God and will thus perish in this life as well as forever. But notice what Asaph says, but as for me, It is good to be near God. It is good to be near God. This was the only vantage point that provided the right perspective in Asaph's life. Friends, this is how you overcome myopic faith. We make the Lord our refuge. And we are quick to recall and proclaim the works of God. Do you have a pattern of doing that in your own life? Let me ask you. Are you quick to recall and proclaim the works of God in your life? 
Are you so consumed by what you perceive around you, so disturbed within that you have lost sight of all of the ways God's manifold goodness has appeared to you to date? And all of the ways that God's manifold goodness is yet to appear to you in a day yet future. Christ is a faithful son. I sure hope and confidence firm until the end. Do you believe that? But as for me, Asaph says, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. My grandmother is 92 years old and and mentions frequently her, much to the chagrin of my sister, mentions frequently her growing desire to be with the Lord. Really, all of her friends, her peers, her family, they've all since passed, and she's just ready, right, to be with the Lord. And one of her favorite hymns is, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Obviously, many of you are familiar with it. It's a timeless hymn. It was inspired by the life of one called, named Lilius Trotter and penned by a poet by the name of Helen Lemmel. Lilius Trotter was an exceptional art- artist. She had an illustrious career in front of her. People were, were moving her across the world, paying for her training just because of the bright future that was in front of her. And that is until... Lillian decided to devote her life to ministering to nationals in North Africa. She would spend over 50 years in North Africa, all for the sake of what? All for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. And during her ministry, Lillian Trotter wrote a poem called Focused, a story and a song. Two decades later, Helen Lemmel would find solace in this this poem. And she would find solace when a tragedy struck that would have life-altering effect in Helen's life. See, Helen was diagnosed with an affliction that would result in blindness. Her husband, unable to cope with the reality, would abandon their marriage, leaving her to cope on her own. And what might have been a debilitating experience for many, both physically and emotionally, only turned Helen more completely to God and to her most compelling vocation, and that is the composing of hymns out of the depth of her heart and her life experience. History records that people would often ask Helen, how are you? And she would often reply, I am fine in the things that matter most. So good. I am fine in the things that matter most. You know the, you know the chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, that is exactly what occurs when you reaffirm your delight and faith in God. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. The things of the earth, everything I used to envy, all of a sudden now appear strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Here's my prayer for North Lake Bible Church. My prayer is that when people walk into this place, and not the place, but among the people, they would be so struck by the sweetness that is experienced because this is a collection of individuals who know the Lord God as their refuge. People who bask in the nearness and goodness of God and can't speak of all of his works, all of his kindness, all of his mercy. 
My prayer and hope, just as I know it is for yours as well, is that it would be contagious. That God would use that spiritual focus to draw others to himself. I don't know where you are this morning, but I do know the world that you live in, and it's messed up. Let's just be honest. The world is messed up. It is not right. It is not what it ought to be. It's not as God intended, but it hasn't been for a really long time. One day it will be. It is a world that can be absolutely terrifying were it not for what? For the nearness of God. I would plead with you this morning, if you are not in Christ today, if you have never called upon Him as Lord and Savior, you need to come to terms with the fact that the nearness of God can only, only, only be experienced and enjoyed through the work of another. The Bible is very clear that from the moment of birth, our lives are marked with rebellion and sin, and that rebellion and sin has caused a separation between us and God that we cannot bridge. And thankfully, the only way of hope is that God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was able to come on this earth and do for us what we could not do ourselves. And that was to mend that relationship with our God and Creator who made us in His image. He bridged that gap through His own perfect life, His own death, burial, and resurrection. And He holds out to every single living human being on this planet today that if you will call upon the Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead. You will be saved. Today can be that day for you. And I would plead with you that you would not leave this place without it being so. Why? Well, we saw Psalm 73, 27. Behold, those who are far from you. What did it say? It said you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Friends, the only way to be spared of that judgment is to avail yourself to the mercy of Jesus Christ that he accomplished and wrought on his cross. Good news, it comes to you by his grace. You don't have to clean anything up to come. You repent of your sin, you turn from living from self and say, God, you are my only hope, I'm desperate for you. Would you save me? And he's faithful, amen? If you know God's faithfulness and you are in Christ today, my hope and prayer is that you would know and rest in the reality that God holds the future in his hands, yes? And that there is tremendous blessing, yes, even in this life for those who trust him. You know this in your own life. We have an enemy who's tireless and crafty and he's been out of work for a really long time. And he would love nothing more for you to live and suffer from spiritual myopia. He delights to see nearsightedness among the people of God. He likes to see faith unsettled. He likes to see the manifestation of an unbelieving heart welling up within. He loves to see the, the triumph of the deceitfulness of sin. He celebrates it. Know this morning that you not only do not have to suffer from spiritual myopia, God desires far more for you. Behold the nearness of God is my good. Do you say that? We need reminders every single day. Thankfully, God is gracious and faithful. Let's turn to him. If you'll stand to your feet, let's pray and ask for the Lord's assistance. The music team will come and we will sing.
Father, we thank you for this morning. It's humbling to think of how quickly we lose sight of things. And no doubt in days yet future, we're going to have moments when our, our vision wanes and becomes unclear. We, we pray in advance for your assistance. We pray that you would help us to regain focus, that you would bring this about even in ourselves as we gather among the people of God, as we avail ourselves to your counsel, that we would rejoice and delight in the fact that you take hold of our right hand and you sustain us, you lead us, and you enable us to see things clearly as they are. God, we do ask for forgiveness where we envy. We do ask for forgiveness and mercy where an unbelieving heart is present within us. Would you expose these things? May we be unsettled by this perception of life. May we be humbled by the distorted view of envy that resides within. But Lord, we also want to be open to a renewed perspective that comes through the worship of God. We even ask now as we lift our voices that we'd use these things to correct our line of sight, all for your glory, that we might be better stewards of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.